Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Carl Grossman. Carl Grossman is the widely published, award-winning investigative reporter and professor of journalism at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. His website is carlgrossman.com. He hosts the TV program Enviro Video. He produces documentaries for WVVH-TV on Long Island. He has six books, including Cover Up, What You Are Not Supposed to Know About Nuclear Power. And there are new things in the news that we are not supposed to know about nuclear power. Uh, Carl Grossman, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. It's a pleasure to be with you. It, it's great to have you on here, and uh, I was very interested in a recent article you published at Counterpunch, among other places, called Radiation is Good for You and Other Tall Tales of the Nuclear Industry. Surely, nobody is actually trying to convince us that, nu- that uh, nuclear radiation is good for us. Unfortunately, that is the situation. You have a, a number of nuclear, well, what to call them, enthusiasts, who are trying to get the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission to change the basis for radiation protection in the United States. For decades, what we've had is the linear no-threshold basis. And what this is about is, well, there is no safe dose of radioactivity. There's no threshold. Even the smallest amounts of radioactivity, it's been found, can result in, in cancer and other diseases can lead to death. Uh, And this linear no-threshold basis has been adopted, well, not just by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the United States, but around the world uh, and internationally. But there's a a grouping of, uh, well, nuclear, as I say, enthusiasts. One organization, the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, they're based down in Washington, describes them as fanatics want the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to forget about the linear no-threshold basis and instead adopt the radiation hormesis theory. And what the radiation hormesis theory holds is that, just what you've mentioned, radioactivity is good for you, that somehow it, it activates the immune system and low doses are, are fine. In fact, they're healthy. They're, they're healthy. It's, it's actually <laughs> produces. So you, you wouldn't want to avoid radiation. You would want to, in fact, go and get uh, at least a little bit of it. In fact, in the article you wrote about a scientist who keeps uh, a rock with uranium uh, next to his bed or did until he started to uh, suffer symptoms. Yes, uh, I quote in the piece on Counterpunch, and people can read it, right? They're on Counterpunch. Just Google my name, Carl Grossman with a K, counterpunch and radiation or radioactivity, and you can read the whole piece. It's, it's chilling, and among the most chilling aspects involves uh, this, this professor, Dr. T.D. Lucky, uh, who taught for many years at the University of Missouri in Columbia, and he for many years has been a, a leading promoter in the United States of this hormesis theory, and in my piece, I quote a story in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which describes um, Dr. Lucky's bedroom, where he keeps, and I'm just reading from uh, the Post-Dispatch 
article a uh, in his bedroom. There's a rock the size of a small bowling ball dotted with flecks of uranium spilling invisible rays. And then, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Lucky noticed a small red splotch on his lower back. In other words, he uh, became concerned about maybe what this uranium was doing. But all he did was uh, move the rock back on the shelf uh, a few <laughs> inches further away from uh, from him. But, no, Dr. Lucky, he says that um, radioactivity has proven health benefits and uh, he loves the he loves radioactivity and uh, well he and what we have now before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission are three petitions by nuclear enthusiasts like Dr. Lucky, which would have the the NRC uh, adopt this this crazy hormesis theory, which has been around for decades and it's been debunked, uh, but uh, somehow these. Uh, Petitioners think this might be the time to get the NRC to agree to it. And, and they may be correct, because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, although it's supposed to be a, a watchdog, a monitor in terms of, of nuclear technology, is really, uh, well, the NRC, some people say, stands for Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission, or No Real Cares. Uh, in fact, the NRC has never denied a construction or operating license for any nuclear power plant anywhere uh, uh, in the United States. Uh, and in the wake of, of um, well, the Fukushima disaster four years back now, the chairman of the NRC, with a Ph.D. in, in atomic physics, he began speaking about how this, this NRC, this, this kangaroo court in the nuclear field, uh, should look at Fukushima and considers, consider lessons learned. And the consequence for Greg Jasko was that he was pushed out as chairman of the NRC uh, by the, the nuclear industry and nuclear enthusiasts in government. So this is the way this, this, uh, this board, this panel works, uh, just uh, essentially uh, doing not a watchdog, it's a lapdog, doing the bidding of those in the nuclear uh, technology field. So quite possibly the NRC uh, might say, yeah, we're going to agree that radioactivity is good for you. And I'd like to add right now that the public listeners should, um, well, send the Nuclear Regulatory Commission your comments on this potential move. Uh, the, uh, The time for public comments uh, closes on November 19th, so there's many weeks ahead in which which listeners can put together uh, letters, or you can send it by email to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, your view on this possible change, and the addresses and the URL uh, where the letters or the emails are to go are in my piece. They're included in my piece on CounterPunch. Yes, and we will have the link to your articles and websites and the link to send your email to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the address to send snail mail there uh, on the on the website with this show at talknationradio.org. Um, the, the, Carl Grossman, the, 
this scientist named Dr. Lucky. I mean, maybe this is a weird case and he just had this name and he was deluded that he would be eternally lucky, but there's scores of these guys, right? I mean, is it the influence of money? Is it simple corruption? Or or is it some sort of uh, internal culture that avoids the facts? Uh, or is it some sort of enthusiasm that has these people really believing this stuff? Well, all three really all three, because when you talk about nuclear technology, it's, it's almost like a cult. I mean, I, I've heard some of the nuclear scientists at the National Nuclear Laboratories, like Los Alamos and Oak Ridge, and, uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory, near where I live here on Long Island in New York. Uh, Argonne is another one. There's a string of them all through the United States talk about themselves as nukies, sort of like moonies. Uh, and uh, that's a product of their narrow education. A lot of them, uh, well, went to uh, uh, universities with uh, uh, atomic science or atomic physics departments that are very, very gung-ho with, about nuclear or served in the nuclear navy. So they they uh, very narrow-minded in terms of nuclear. And then it's, it's a question of... Uh, uh, but but is their bread? I mean, they're all deeply involved in in nuclear technology uh, uh, for a living, and so they have a a, a vested uh, interest. Uh, in fact, one of the petitions comes from Sandia National Laboratories in New Mexico. It's one of these national nuclear laboratories, and then it's just a matter, I guess, of of well, of of a mistaken notion. Uh, a mistaken notion that has its roots going way back. I mean, a lot this nuclear juggernaut, so to speak, this uh, nuclear establishment. It begins with the Manhattan Project during World War II, the crash program to build atomic bombs before before. I mean, this was the fear the Germans would. The fission had been done in late 30, 1938 in Germany. So Albert Einstein sent a letter to President Franklin Roosevelt in 1939, telling him of this development and urging the United States to take action. And our action was to fight fire with fire, to develop nuclear weapons before the uh, the Nazis did, before the Germans did. And th- these laboratories like Los Alamos and, uh, and Argonne and Oak Ridge and so forth was set up, and uh, oh, hundreds of thousands of people were employed, billions were spent, and by the end of the war, we had a couple of nuclear weapons that were dropped on Japan, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, but the big issue was to, uh, well, build new nuclear weapons. But the, the bigger issue, I must say, would, was the question of how are we going to perpetuate what really became a, a vested interest, a, uh, how, to, how to keep these laboratories going, how to... General Electric and Westinghouse were the big contractors during the Manhattan Project. Uh, how, was, how would GE and Westinghouse be able to uh, keep their contracts? So out of the Manhattan Project comes more nuclear weapons, ultimately 30,000 uh, atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs built by the United States. But uh, nuclear weapons don't lend themselves to commercial spinoff. I mean, you couldn't sell an atomic bomb even to France or to England, what else could be done with nuclear technology to to keep this uh, establishment going? And there you get uh, 
oh, schemes like nuclear-powered airplanes, nuclear-powered rockets, which actually I've, I've written uh, about uh, in a book called The Wrong Stuff, uh, food irradiation, zapping potatoes and strawberries with radioactivity so you can uh, eat them years uh, into the future, and nuclear power plants, the most dangerous way ever conceived of boiling water to turn a turbine to generate electricity. And in any case, during this period of the Manhattan Project and the the several years afterwards, uh, there was a lot of radioactivity around, and scientists and engineers were being exposed to it. And what they found was that uh, at low levels, those exposed to radioactivity didn't drop dead uh, they weren't they're lying in the gutter, so to speak. Uh, so there was a notion at that point that there was a threshold below which radioactivity didn't harm people. But what they hadn't calculated, and this is the mistaken notion, was that radioactivity at low levels has an incubation or latency period of from 5 to 40 years. Uh, you're exposed, and then, then it, takes, it takes a while before... That exposure results in uh, in a tumor or other manifestations of cancer and other illness, and and then then it happens. Then the the illness uh, uh, hits. So what occurs in the 1950s is the end of this notion of a threshold and the acceptance of what these nuclear enthusiasts would would like uh, to eliminate the. Uh, the notion of a linear no threshold, linear being at any level, uh, linear no threshold, uh, people can be impacted by radioactivity. The smaller doses provide the smallest uh, possibility. And as you go up in terms of th- th- this linear measure, uh, the more you get, uh, the more you um, uh, can end up uh, can end up ill. Uh, but the hormesis people go beyond even that. They're not just saying, let's forget about the no threshold. Let's kind of believe that there is a threshold. They're saying that low doses are, as I say, good for you. It's, uh, oh, uh, I teach a course at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. I've taught there 36 years in environmental journalism, and I use a book. Uh, excellent book written by John Stauber and Sheldon Rampton titled Toxic Sludge is Good for You. And what uh, John and Sheldon write about is a public relations company representing a company that uh, generated a lot of toxic sludge. And how this PR outfit dealt with it was by claiming in its, uh, in its outreach to people that don't worry about the toxic sludge uh, generated by this company because toxic sludge is good for you. So here you have these these, these nuclear enthusiasts uh, doing a sort of nuclear counterpart of that. They would tell us that radioactivity is good for us. The uh, the Washington Post last week had an article about the sludge producing plant in Washington D.C. that they said has been radically upgraded and it's only going to produce half as much sludge and it's going to be the good quality stuff. And now <laughs> instead of trucking it to Virginia to dump it on farms where I have to smell it and breathe it, they're going to sell it in bags at Home Depot. So I, I think I think this the success is clear in terms of the public relations. Uh, you you mentioned uh, Carl Grossman uh, the 
these scientists who started this madness. And in one of your columns, you actually talked about the, the first test of, of an atomic bomb. They were actually making bets with each other on whether the atmosphere of the Earth would ignite. Uh, I mean, this seems like a, a level of sociopathy that... Uh, that now has been duplicated by all of us collectively, right, in keeping these weapons and these plants around and playing games with the, the, the survivability of the Earth's climate in terms of environmental destruction. I mean, have, has there been sort of a toxic effect on our entire culture of these mad scientists in their lab, which has started out as something fairly small? Yeah, well, uh, mad science is... Uh uh, is the proper term, the term you're using, uh, mad and irresponsible, uh, totally outrageous and, and, and extremely secretive because back to PR, uh, public relations uh, types, these, these scientists from, uh, and in my book, Cover Up What You're Not Supposed to Know About Nuclear Power, I, I connect this, uh, uh, this 1940s, 1950s effort that I was speaking of to to push to promote nuclear technology, uh, I connect the scientists with the public relations, uh, well, uh, an army of public relations people uh, they, they partnered with uh, to push all this uh, in secrecy, uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of this work. Uh, in fact, if I can just read the first couple of sentences from my book, Cover Up, uh, What You're Not Supposed to Know About Nuclear Power, uh, you have not been informed about nuclear power. You have not been told and that has been done on purpose. Keeping the public in the dark was deemed necessary by the promoters of nuclear power if it was to succeed. Those in government, science, and private industry who have been pushing nuclear power realized that if people were given the facts, if they knew the consequences of nuclear power, they wouldn't stand for it. And just let me note that this book, Cover Up, is available for free, as a download, just go to my website, carlgrossman.com. Hit the button for um, books, and uh, the publisher of the book, very generous, has agreed to put, in fact, a, a new revised post-Fukushima edition of the book uh, right on my website. And you just hit that, uh, again, the books button, and then you go to a download, and you get the download for free. And what I filled the book up with, most I think very importantly, uh, are facsimiles of documents from government and industry uh, acknowledging uh, the the likelihoods of uh, of nuclear plant disasters, the consequences. In fact, there's a line repeated over and over again in a uh, report done uh, at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Uh, uh, again, this is this is close to where I live. And uh, let me just read it. I mean, here, here it is. You see it as typed over and over again in a report called WASH 740 Update done at Brookhaven National Laboratory. You know, back in the 60s, the possible size of the area of such a disaster, they're talking about a nuclear plant meltdown, might be equal to that of the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, this they were writing in the 60s, a decade before... The Three Mile Island nuclear plant accident nearly devastated the state of Pennsylvania. So, and in terms of, of, of what, what you're, you're mentioning, consequences, the consequences are, in, are and have been enormous. I mean, nuclear plants don't have to undergo a catastrophic accident 
to release, uh, like a Chernobyl or Fukushima or a Three Mile Island, to release deadly poisons. Nuclear plants, um, just in routine operation, emit radioactivity. And there's cancer clusters around nuclear plants, the 99 in the United States, and about 300-plus around the world. I mean, this has been documented. But, uh, well, back to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The NRC had funded a study to be done by the National Academy of Sciences on cancer around nuclear power plants. Uh, The study was begun, and guess what happened a couple of weeks ago? The NRC canceled the study, canceled the study about cancer around nuclear power plants just on the basis of routine operation. And then you get the uh, the catastrophes, uh, the uh, the death toll from Chernobyl. And I, I've written about this. Uh, now, this is an accident happened in 86, so we're now, oh, more than 30 years beyond it, or, or nearly 30 years beyond it. Uh, the, the latest calculations by uh, uh, Professor Alexei Yablokov, he's from, and I, I've gotten to know him, he's, he's a leading figure in, uh, in, in science and a former environmental advisor to Gorbachev and Yeltsin in Russia. He and other European scientists have put together an analysis based on, on health data that they've been able to obtain, uh, which show that 985,000 people as near a million people have died as a result of the Chernobyl uh, uh, disaster of 86, many of them from cancer. Uh, and they, they, they connect the fallout from Chernobyl to enormous spikes in cancer rates wherever the fallout occurred, whether it was in Belarus or in Russia or Ukraine where uh, Chernobyl is, is located or elsewhere where there was out. Uh, the winds blew and rain came and there was fallout, for example, in the Scandinavian countries, in Sweden and Norway and Finland and so forth. Uh, the consequences of the Fukushima accident are going to be, here you're talking about several nuclear plants exploding, erupting. Uh, in fact, that's an ongoing accident with nuclear poisons continuing to be uh, sent into the air and into the Pacific Ocean, where there's a, what's called a multiplication effect. Uh, the nuclear poisons get on some vegetation. Little fish eat the vegetation. Uh, medium-sized fish eat the little fish. Big fish eat the medium-sized fish. And I wouldn't want to eat uh, tuna from the Pacific. I hate to say this in a restaurant in San Francisco, sushi restaurant in San Francisco, uh, these days uh, because of the Fukushima disaster. In terms of consequences to people that's being picked up now and in Japan and elsewhere of Fukushima. I mean, what these, what these scientists, these engineers and this nuclear field and these corporations that are so deeply, like Westinghouse and GE, they're the Coke and Pepsi of nuclear power. Eighty percent of nuclear power plants worldwide historically have been of GE and or Westinghouse design or manufacture. What these people have done is is just uh, well, uh, just before the first page of my book, which I, I read, the, you know, the first couple of lines, I, I quote from Deuteronomy. I have said this is heavy stuff, but I think it's totally relevant here. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. 
And that's the issue here. We have this, uh, uh, this uh, all over the world now, these machines that are, are death machines that, that kill, uh, and, and for no good reason. I mean, uh, solar and wind and geothermal and hydro and tidal power, I mean, all these safe, clean, renewable energy technologies can easily uh, substitute for... Uh, for the, for, the, for the toxic nuclear technology, uh, these poisonous nuclear power plants. But you've you got to get into the politics of nuclear technology, of nuclear power, the, the political power uh, behind uh, this effort, uh, the economic power, has been enormous. So the ship of state still, I mean, the, uh, the Obama administration, despite Barack Obama when he ran for office, uh, saying that, no, we don't need nuclear, these plants are dangerous, we can do solar and wind. He did a big flip. Under the Obama administration, uh, new nuclear plants, uh, thankfully not a lot, but a number of them uh, are being built with uh, with taxpayer support, with, with loan federal government loan guarantees, and two of these nukes are to open, uh, they hope, uh, the nuclear establishment hopes later this year, or 2016 most likely, uh, in South Carolina. So these new plants are being built. But again, there's no need for nuclear power. It's terribly, terribly. I mean, there's nothing more dangerous. Uh, and just if I can jump quickly, too, to the the issue of proliferation. Any nuclear, any country that gets a nuclear facility has the, uh, well, the trained personnel uh, in the nuclear field and the material, the plutonium, to make a, make a bomb. I mean, in 1974, uh, uh, we trained uh, Indian technicians on in nuclear technology, and uh, the Canadians, in fact, provided a reactor. And uh, lo and behold, as a result, India, through this Atoms for Peace effort, had a nuclear weapon. So uh, nuclear power is really just one side of a double-sided coin with nuclear war on the other. Carl, we have just a couple of minutes left. Did you make this interview uh, wonderfully easy, answering questions I, without me having to ask them? But uh, in, in conclusion, what should people know? What should people do to help uh, in this well, moment? Well, they should, as the man said a century ago, talking about uh, the need for unions, organize, organize, organize. Get involved with organizations that are fighting nuclear power like Greenpeace or Beyond Nuclear or Nuclear Information and Resource Service and others. And also learn about it because, again, it's, it's, there's been this cover-up. I think the most articulate summary involving the dangers of nuclear power was made by Admiral Hyman Rickover. Now, he is not only, was not only the father of our nuclear navy in the U.S., but he was in charge of construction of the first nuclear plant in the country, in Shippingport, Pennsylvania, opened in 57. By 1982, Rickover, despite being part of the nuclear establishment, saw the light, and he testified in a farewell address to a committee of Congress in 82. And what he said was several billion years ago, there was so much radioactivity on Earth that you, you couldn't have any kind of life, fish or, or anything. I'm quoting him. And this this testimony is in my book, Cover Up. It's also, you can Google it online. Then he goes on, Rickover, not Greenpeace, Rickover saying, 
by having these nuclear power plants, by doing fission, we are recreating the very poisons that precluded life from existing. And there, I think, again, Rick, over the human race is going to wreck itself. And we mu- what we must do, says Rick, over, is to outlaw nuclear reactors, to outlaw nuclear power plants. Uh, again, that's, oh, that's Rick over, and that is, I think, the proper prescription. We've got to shut every nuclear power plant down right away. No need for any of them. Carl, we have Carl to Grossman. prevent any new ones from being built, and we have to create a future using energy that we can live with, safe, clean, green energy. Carl Grossman, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. A pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.